I'm Barbara DeMarca Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Rebecca Mackay. Her novel, The Great Believers, was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. It was the winner of the ALA Carnegie Medal, the Stonewall Book Award, and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. And it was one of the New York Times 10 Best Books of 2018. Her other books are the novels The Borrower and The Hundred Year House, and the story collection Music for Wartime. Her new novel is I Have Some Questions for You, which is released today, February 21st. On the show, we spoke about pantsing versus plotting, titles, categorization, what she does when she hits a wall, and so much more. Before we bring her on, I want to remind you about Patreon. If you've been listening for a while and have found these interviews useful, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Contributing any amount helps us to continue doing what we're doing, and we appreciate every penny, and we thank you, our loyal listeners and patrons. Now, let's bring on Rebecca Mackay. I'm so happy to have you on the show, and I would love to hear you talk about the book. I have some questions for you and how it came about. Yeah. So what I've been saying uh, in public is it's a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery. Um, (laughs) That really is what it is. Um, It's uh, having a lot of fun with some of the tropes of mystery, but it is a literary novel. Um, It's just meaning that it's one that asks you to think, you know, a lot along the way. And um, I, I happen to live on the campus of the boarding school where my husband teaches Um, I've lived here most of my adult life. So it was inevitable that at some point I would write a boarding school novel, Mm -hmm. Uh, not at all about the one where I live, not about my high school experience, but just um, the place that that kind of simultaneously really permanent and really transient place. These places that are ancient, but people pass through so quickly. Um, And it's such a formative time in their lives. So um, I was always going to write one. And I didn't want to write from the perspective of a teenager. Uh, I don't write YA. That's not my thing. Um, I mean, I love, I love to read it, but it's not my thing to write. And um, so I wanted an adult looking back. And when we look back, it tends to fall into the category of mystery, whether literal or figurative. And in this case, I went literal. There's um, a crime that has been saw murder that happened when this young woman was in high school. Um, someone's in prison and when she's in her forties, she realizes it might be the wrong guy. So I was curious about, um, well, a few things you, a few things that you just mentioned, but categorization, you know, like often new writers or maybe not so new writers in a query letter, you have to kind of say what genre you're writing in. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, what do you think about categorization and does upmarket, is that a catch-all? <laughs> No, it's funny because upmarket tends to really be more like a very specific category of uh, kind of book clubby women's fiction um, that maybe is could be very popular, but wouldn't be the 
kind that would be say considered for prizes. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything's considered for prizes, but it's right. not, it's definitely not a catch all. It means something very specific in the industry. Um, and, uh, um, that this this would not fall into that category, I, I don't think. Um, so, you know, the, the good thing is I am, you know, this is my fifth book. It's my fourth novel. I had a story collection in there as well. And um, I am not going to get fortunately categorized myself just by this book and what it's about. Um, I don't think, for instance, that it's going to go straight to the mystery shelf. It would be just on the fiction table. Um right. And uh, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, it, people, you could say, oh, gosh, it's so bad to pigeonhole books. They can be whatever they want to be. But at the same time, people go into a bookstore looking for a certain kind of book um, or they they go on their, um, you know, audiobook app looking for a certain kind of book. And they want to know just broadly, what am I getting into here? Um, is this light and fluffy? Is it a good escape? Is it dark and serious? Is this realistic? Is it fantasy? This, it's totally fair questions to ask. And it's fair, you know, for people in the industry to think about those ahead of publication too. So I have some questions for you. Could be, I mean, it would be on the fiction stack. I mean, literary fiction, but it, it could also be in the mystery, um, on a mystery shelf, which is yeah. very cool. You know what I think is all the bookstores should buy twice as many and just put it in both places. That would be a I really good solution. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be a great idea. <laughs> well, so, you know, you mentioned um, what, how you wrote it, that it wasn't meant to be YA and, and, you know, the, the voice is really kind of interesting. Well, there's a couple of things going on. So it's second person, right? Right. It's well, person. It's, it's first person. It's not like you went here, you think. Right. It's it's a first person narrative from this woman Bodie Kane who's returning to teach for two weeks at her old boarding school, but there is a she's addressing it to someone, right. um, and uh, so that you pops in once in a while, and it becomes clear a few chapters in who that you is that she's talking to. Um, it's not us, the reader, although of course you know the, the reader is invited in, but um, she's really directing her thoughts her narrative at a certain person from her past. So was that there from the start when you started writing this book? Almost. And it's funny because people want to talk about that part and I love talking about it, but I can't remember when I put it in. There was no moment of going, aha, I know what I'm going to do. It must've been pretty early. Uh, You know, the first uh, two or three weeks of me really writing this book I was in residency at the Ragdale Foundation's, you know, artist residency. So it was it was two or three really intense weeks of early drafting when you're just kind of in a trance. And it happens somewhere in that time, um, somewhere in that, that it's a very magical place. So, I, you know, kind of, you're kind of in this zone. Um, you try many things, you know, as you draft and you keep the things that work. Um, this particular thing, once I got that second person in there, it worked. It allowed me to um, uh, tell the story in a very specific way, as if to someone who who knew certain parts of it. Um, it allowed me to have a reason for my narrator, sort of a way for my narrator to channel some of her anger and frustration at the people who let her down in the past, of which this person is one. Um, so it, it's it started to ping off all the other elements in the novel, 
And when, when something does that, you know, that's probably something you want to keep. So, you know, when we started talking, you said that you wanted to write a boarding school novel. Mm -hmm. So then when did it become specific? You wanted to write a boarding school novel where this crime happened some time ago and so on. I mean, how did, do you recall the process of getting sort of getting in there and going really specific with story? I mean, it takes several years. I, I have a sort of marinating phase where I'm I'm doing other things. You know, I was I was editing The Great Believers, my last book. I was touring for that. I was doing everything else. It's one of several novel ideas rolling around, and things start to snowball a little bit where other things you think about start to stick to that, and it all starts to become part of the same book. Um, so, and, and I let that happen just really organically. I don't sit down and go, now, what is this book going to be about? Um, uh, I, I liked the idea of um, kind of excavation, like someone figuring out um, what had happened in the past. I also, you know, I was um, paying a lot of attention uh, to the, it's not a, nothing new in people's interest in true crime, but um, the new medium of the podcast regarding, which is a big part of the book. Um, I was paying attention to that along with a lot of other people and uh, very captured by several different cases um, in which people were being asked as cases came up for a retrial or were being reexamined, witnesses were being asked to go back and remember what happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, and that, that, kind of, that was another kind of big, it's, it's, you know, that was another snowball that joined the original snowball. Um, and, uh, and then other things just, you know, kind of come along, along the way. Well, what about uh, Bodhi, Bodhi's relationship with her husband? Cause he's her ex-husband, but they live side by side and they share the children um, and they're very close. So talk about that relationship. I found that relationship kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I wanted to write a story about a woman who, you know, had a, has a family, but is not particularly, um, tied down romantically. Um, and, and, you know, free to, um, uh, first of all, free for plot points that I might want, right? Like maybe I want her to fall in love with someone. Maybe I want her to flirt with someone. Let's, let's free her up a little bit. Um, but her husband, uh, her her ex husband, uh, really gets me tooed, uh, and there's a he's an artist, and um, there's another artist who makes a, a performance art piece about him, and about the relationship they had when um, she was in her early twenties and he was a decade or so older, um, and that's kind of the substance of the me too is that it wasn't a great relationship and he was a good deal older. Um, the kind of very gray area where um, uh, some people, you know, when this when those situations have come up in real life, have really felt like things jump the shark and are going, wait, an age gap in a relationship is not a, it's not for among consenting adults is not predatory. It's not something to, to ruin someone's career over, but those things are happening. Um, and other people saying, well, but this, you know, you have a, a real power imbalance in this relationship and um, that's problematic in ways that we need to talk about. So that's what's going on with her husband. And, and of course, um, you know, I was writing this from 
gosh, I mean, like actively writing from like 2019 until whenever my final edits were in about a year ago. Um, but thinking about it before then, and and 2019, we were in the the pretty immediate aftermath of that first round of Me Too um, that was going on, and then things continued to happen in in the in the literary world, in in the art world, in in other places. Um, individual circumstances came up that that kept this in in my mind that that. Um, I was having conversations with friends that we would not have had on Twitter mm-hmm. about, gosh, I don't think this one was so bad or, well, did you hear what else this guy did? Um, <laughs> but, uh, and that, that, um, you know, when I'm obsessed with something and I'm not obsessed, but like when, when something's really taking up mental space for me, when I'm thinking about it a lot, that's a great thing to pour into my project. It's to, to pour into my fiction. So, and that's kind of an important subplot right? I mean, it's one it of the, the important subplots. So we were just having this conversation last night, you know, how many subplots should a novel have and where did they come from? And of course they have to be tied to the main story somehow, but I mean, what do you think? Do How important, I mean, are you thinking out subplots as you begin this book or is that a natural kind of evolution of yeah, I don't think about, I don't think of them as subplots. And I, and I certainly wouldn't, I I don't think anyone should try to think of a formula or a number or something that would be very, that's the path to um, misery and, and and bad writing. So I would, I mean, just, just, you know, it's gotta be organic. Um, You know, in real life, there are many things going on and I'm trying to write a novel that, um, although it has maybe more shape to it than real life that, that represents real life in real life, you know, you're, you're something, you know, there's one big thing going on, but there's stuff going on with your family and there's stuff going on in the news and there's stuff going on um, that, you know, just random memories that come up for you. And uh, so I'm, I'm certainly not sitting down and, and, you know, mapping that out in a, gosh, I need three subplots, plot, subplot A, B, and C. It just, it, you know, just, this is real life. It, in real life, stuff goes on with your family at the same time that you're, you're dealing with career and, and other concerns. So maybe subplots are more a function of, you know, the straight mystery or the straight thriller where certain things have to happen. Right. When it's a formula. Right. Yeah, sure. Right. Like you can watch a, a sitcom, right? And go, oh, well, here's the main plot. And then they have to use the other two characters. So this is the subplot. And you know it's going to get wrapped up last, like as the little denouement, the little short scene, like, you know, after the last commercials, but before the, you know, it, it, <laughs> there's a there's a a very specific formula there. Um and um you know, that's, that's not what this book is. I, I don't, any, anyone coming in thinking this is going to be a cozy, a cozy mystery where the, the lady and the cat solve the crime. Those are great. But that's not what this is. Right. No, I love literary fiction that ha- that involves a crime of some sort. I mean, it's like something has to happen. <laughs> I mean, right. Well, it's also like, you think about if I'm going to tell the story of any person's life, I could choose any event out of the course of their lives. You're going to choose the most important one or the most dramatic one. And very often, you know, real life, you look at anyone and, and go, okay, what, what is the most dramatic thing that's happened to you? A lot of those involve crimes, illegal activity, something, um, 
you know, or, or some uh, tremendous struggle. So those are the things that we then are going to write novels about. We're not going to write about the time someone went to the dentist and then they did errands and then they had too much email, you know, they're, we're going to write about the thing. Yeah. So are you careful about pulling in elements from your own life or composite characters? Or again, is it just yeah what I, what the story needs and where where you go I, with it? Right. I'm not, I'm, I really don't use things from my own life. It, it, when things, anything that does come in from my own life will be something like a tiny detail, mm-hmm. just something I noticed, you know, like, oh, this funny sinus out the grocery store. And then that might make its way in, but it would be on that level. Um, I find, I feel really limited um, if I try to write about anyone real, even historical. I, I am, my next book, I am trying to write a novel about someone, a real person, a real historical person. And oh my God, it's giving me fits. Cause I can't, she can't just be mm-hmm. a product of my imagination who does whatever I want. Um, I'm going to do it, but it, like, this is, this is hard for me. And, and mm-hmm. similarly, I've, I can't, I can't point to any fictional character I've ever written and say, oh, this is based on this person. Mm-hmm. There might be tiny pieces of someone, um, but it's, you know, maybe a, a quarter of someone and and I might not even be aware of it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar, you know, with plot, I mean, you know, if, if I wrote about my real life, it would be, you know, seriously less dramatic. Um, <laughs> And, and I'm very often trying to make things as different as possible. You know, I, as I said, I do live on campus at this boarding school in the Midwest. Um, so this boarding school that I'm writing about needs to be in New Hampshire. It needs to be a ski school. I need to do as much as I possibly can to make sure, not just that it looks different, but that it is different. This is not in my imagination. This is not this, the place that I, that I know. This, this has to be fully, fully dreamed up. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned, you know, like you're working on your book and thinking about your book until the final edits. And so I was curious about the title. I have some questions for you because on your Goodreads bio, it says your book, your next, or a book to be published is called 95. Oh, we got to change that. Whoops. (laughs) Yeah, that was was, because I already wanted to ask you about titles because I noticed that a lot of novels have um, one to two or three word titles, sometimes four. And if you go longer than that, that's really interesting. And so I was reading your bio and I saw 95. And so I was so extra curious about the title Uh, of the book and how you came to that. Yeah, um, I liked 95, but nobody else did as a title. And I get it, like it, to me, I mean, it's, it's referring to the year 1995, which is when the events um, you know, this woman is, is it, we're in 2018 and then 2022. Is that right? Yes. Um, and uh, she's looking back on the events of 1995. Um, I liked that as a title, but I think um, I understand it just, it doesn't telegraph the mood. It doesn't telegraph um, the subject, you know, like you look at it and go 95, what, you know, Um so uh yeah, we needed something else. And we I had a really hard time finding this title. Um, but there was uh 
already a phrase that there's a chapter that starts with, I have some questions for you. That's, that's directed at this, uh, second person person uh, figure. Um, and so I just, you know, was like, okay, that's, that, that makes sense. Um, it, uh, it does, I think send, it sends the message of, you know, that, that for both first and second person, it lets us know that this is, um, maybe that it's a mystery, but also that this is really like, we're going to, they're not going to be easy answers here. We're, um, these questions are not just about what happened. They are about a lot of other things too. What about titles? You know, I mean, like what should titles do? Should titles be sort of the entryway into, into the book? I mean, what, it, I mean, yeah, it needs a, a, with a short story, with a poem, you could have whatever title you want. It, it should add to the meaning, but that title is not probably the thing that's going to get you to read it. With a novel, um, uh, or with a, you know, the, the title of a short story collection, poetry collection, um, yeah, it needs to be memorable. It needs to, uh it it still needs to add to the meaning of the book. It needs to get a bit of um, the mood, the tone, the subject, something like that across. And, you know, it's, it, you know, it's, you can be really, really literal, um, but um, it, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, something like The Handmaid's Tale, right? It's like, well, it is the tale told by the handmaid. Well, what's a handmaid? Oh, you need to read and find out, right? right. Um, it really just, you know, kind of tells you what it is. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, the name of a character. Um, you get, you know, Beloved or Rebecca or, you know, that kind of thing. Um I, what the kind of titles that I can't stand are the ones where everyone gets into the same rut and it's like, for I was joking with someone on Twitter the other day, but like for a long time, it was, I call it the occupationist's relative, be like the beekeeper's daughter, the shopkeeper's like nephew, the, um, and now it's the, it's like the, the number of, it's it like, it's the like seven husbands of seven and a half husbands of Evelyn. There's an Evelyn Hardcastle one and an Evelyn Hugo. And they're both like the seven something of Evelyn who did that second that's so weird um you know the the 93 there's actually a dr seuss one what is it the some the some number of hats of bartholomew cubbins that was like <laughs> one of my favorite books when i was little um but uh you know when people start following that same pattern again and again it starts to feel like wait are you trying to trick us into buying this because it sounds like something we already like what's going on here <laughs> uh, so i i like titles that um that do something, you know, a little different that, that, that don't sound like the last thing that was popular two seasons ago. Well, there's, there's that one with, you know, girl or woman. Oh yeah. That was a big thing, right? The girl on the L train, the, the girl with the the window, the woman in the window. Right. I mean, I'm, yeah, making up fake ones, but yeah, yeah. The woman in the window and the girl on the train and the girl and the, the girl with the dragon tattoo and the, yeah, yeah. Gone Girl, which maybe started it all. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure, but yeah, I think we're done with the girls now. <laughs> well, so what about the Great Believers? Do you remember how that title came to you? 
Yeah, that that is specifically taken from a quote that is the epigraph for the book. It's it's an F. Fitzgerald quote, and I found that title very early in my research, and then it it that was it. Um, I needed to justify that title. I needed to keep returning to it and going, wait, this is you know, what do these people believe in? Um, what what is the optimism in this book? Uh, what beliefs? Uh, you know, sometimes they there there are some a couple of characters who are very naive. They believe things that they shouldn't believe. Um, but that one, uh, it's right there in the epigraph, and it's funny because I know people skip epigraphs, and so then it. it oh, I love epigraphs. I love epigraphs. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll get it. Reading people be like, "What does the title mean?" And everyone <laughs> around them is like, "It's it's right there in the epigraph," but they they flipped past it. So what can? So did the epigraph come first, and you wanted to use it, and then as time went on, you said this is the title, or no, no, no. I, f- I found I found the quote and went, "That's my title," and, and that's and it. I'm use that. Yeah, I'm going to use that as an epigraph. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'd love to hear you read from. I have some questions for you. Would you uh, minutes. I can do that. Um, I think the thing that makes the most sense is to just read the opening page and a half, if that. All right. So um, this is a bit sort of a prologue. Um, and then we get in, we get, then, then part one starts. Okay. You've heard of her, I say, a challenge, an assurance to the woman on the neighboring hotel bar stool who's made the mistake of striking up a conversation to the dentist who runs out of questions about my kids and asks what I've been up to myself. Sometimes they know her right away. Sometimes they ask, wasn't that the one where the guy kept her in the basement? No, no, it was not. Wasn't it the one where she was stabbed in? No. The one where she got in a cab with different girl. The one where she went to the frat party, the one where he used a stick, the one where he used a hammer, the one where she picked him up from rehab and he, no. The one where he'd been watching her jog every day. The one where she made the mistake of telling him her period was late. The one with the uncle. Wait, the other one with the uncle? No, it was the one with the swimming pool. The one with the alcohol in the, with her hair around, with the guy who confessed to, right, yes. They nod, comforted. By what? My barstool neighbor pulls the celery from her Bloody Mary, crunches down. My dentist asks me to rinse. They work her name in their mouths, their memories. I definitely know that one, they say. That one, because what is she now but a story? A story to know or not know. A story with a limited set of details. A story to master by memorizing maps and timelines. The one from the boarding school, they say. I remember the one from the video. You knew her? She's the one who, who's, sorry. She's the one whose photo pops up if you search New Hampshire murder alongside mugshots from the meth-addled tragedies of more recent years. One photo, her laughing with her mouth, but not her eyes, suggesting some deep unhappiness, tends to feature in clickbait. It's just a crop shot of the tennis team from the yearbook. If you knew Thalia, it's easy to see she wasn't actually upset, was simply smiling for the camera when she didn't feel like it. It was the story that got told and retold. It was the one where she was young enough and white enough and pretty enough and rich enough that people paid attention. It was the one where we all, let's read that sentence again. It was the one where we were all young enough to think someone smarter had the answers. Maybe it was the one we got wrong. Maybe it was the one we all collectively, each bearing only the weight of a feather got wrong. Mm, Very nice. Um, It's so nice to hear you read 
from from the book. And if this becomes a video, I'll, you'll be able to see this wonderful cover of I have some questions for you. Um, what do you have roles or are there roles for writing a braided narrative? You know where your rules? Yeah, I mean, just I like rules. What are you talking about? <laughs> doing it, doing it so it works. Ah, I, this is not a braided narrative. Um, so a braided, a braided essay or a braided narrative would really be like two, three, four parts where we're alternating back and forth between them. Um, and this is not that. Um, it is a book where, you know, she's very specifically trapped in the present. We never jump back to the past. Um, she remembers things, but is very much aware of how her memory might be faulty. And, um, she, you know, we, we, the narrative, the narrative cannot go there. We are with her in the present. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and, and then following a, a little bit the way an actual mind works of living in the present, but also thinking about the past and, and sometimes thinking about the future. That's how we exist. We don't exist just in the present moment. Um, so no, this, this is not braided, but um, it is something that is very much concerned with the passage of time and, and we're looking back a lot. Um, and, you know, every book should do that differently. Um, mine, the, the, you know, the things that I decided on early, um, one of them, you know, one would be that she'd be trapped in the present. Another would be that she um, is going to be, you know, she's not going to be confidently saying, I remember this. And then he said this, and then he scratched his left cheek. And then I looked and it smelled like strawberries, which is the, um, the lie of a lot of fiction, a lot of film. And it's one that we like, right? Um, there's that suspension of disbelief that someone would remember something and they are remembering the full thing in great detail in chronological order as a complete scene. Um, you know, film that will take us back. Like we zero in on someone's face and it goes wavy. So we know we're in their memory and then we jump back and we actually see it happen. That's not the way memory works. Um, memory is, you know, skewed. It can be very wrong. We get snippets of it. Um, and that is what I was trying to do. We, we sometimes get a little bit more of a scene, but um, this narrator is constantly saying, I don't remember for sure, or I think this happened, or explaining when she does remember something clearly why that is. Um, there's a point where she's, you know, she says, I remember exactly what Thalia said because she never swore. And this time she swore. So um, uh, that was, you know, the, the, it's not rules, but like the decisions that I made going into this book going, okay, this is the way I'm going to deal with memory in this narrative. Um, and, and other books, you know, other authors should absolutely be thinking critically about their own narrative and what it needs um, rather than, uh, than any kind of rules or formula. How do you keep track? How do you keep track of all the moving parts? Do you have like a you know, stuff on your wall? Do you use a spreadsheet? Do you do? Yeah, no, just, just basic outlining. Um, I have timelines, you know, for something like this, I needed very detailed timelines of um, the night that, that Thalia died. Um, uh, and I needed maps of the campus, um, very detailed maps. So I knew exactly where everything was. 
And then um, scene by scene, uh, well, you know, I had broader timeline timelines as well, right? Of of um, just you know who was how old and where, you know, when did this thing happen? You know, more like this happened in April, this happened in March. Um, and then, yeah, just, you know, I have, as I'm, you know, at a certain point when I get stuck, I go back and I go, okay, let me outline everything I have so far. And that is, you know, going to be a list of the scenes. What do I have? What do I need? Um, but that's, that's it. I don't, you know, my, my wall does, I don't have the serial killer wall. I know a lot of writers who have the serial killer wall. <laughs> I, um, I just, a novel, I teach a novel writing class at story studio in Chicago where I'm artistic director and I've had, you know, I've, all these different, I've taught like 11 different cohorts of, of novelists and they always share, you know, their process and people will come in and say like, Oh, I got like this huge thing of paper and, or I got all these note cards. This one young woman, um, I guess she owned her uh, condo. She um, and was able to do this. She painted one whole wall of her living room with chalkboard paint, wow. and she outlined her novel on there. Um, and then, you know, the next class, we were, I said we were talking. I said, "How does that go? How's it going?" And she said, "She was like, well, I brought a date back, and he was really worried." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't say. And it says like, "Kill Bob," you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, so. Yeah, so, you know, what you said, um, what, do, what do I have? What do I need? It reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever looked at Carolyn C's uh, Making a Literary Life, but she has a very short chapter on revision. And she's like, what do I have? What do I need? I haven't looked at that. I should. That's, that's a wonderful what... book. I mean, in many ways. And, you know, yeah. she was a wonderful writer. But. Um, oh, know. fantastic. Yeah. She also talks in that book about writing a charming note to a writer, you know, that you've read and liked. And I'm curious oh. about that. I mean, do you like it? Do you get mail? Do you get physical mail or is it all email? <laughs> it's really mostly email once in a while. Um, Penguin will be like, here are three envelopes that came for you. <laughs> you go, okay. Hope there's no anthrax. Um, and they'll, they'll send them, you know, in, in a bigger envelope. Um, no, it's almost all email because it's, first of all, I'm easy to find them on social media, you know, um, and uh, it's just, you know, the way most people communicate now, but um, yeah, I've gotten the most amazing emails, um, especially, you know, with the great believers, because it was about the AIDS epidemic in the eighties, um, the notes from survivors, people who lived through that time, people who lost people, um, those meant so much to me. Um, of course, I'd been I'd been talking to so many people like that for my research on that book, uh, but then it it felt like the research just kept going because I kept um, when people would write to me they they wouldn't it wasn't just to say I read your book and I liked it it would be to share their story as well um, of the person they lost or what happened to them and it just it feels like I'm. I'll be researching that book for the rest of my life, which is amazing. I love it. How about research? I mean, it, it, like, when do you stop or do you stop? You know, I mean, because I know writers who get lost in research. You know, oh, yeah. They yeah. love it so much. and Or maybe it's a procrastination. It and is. How it, you- it's both. It's both. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of researching as you go. Um, there are times, you know, you need to sometimes figure out like the lay of the land stuff early. Um, 
uh, just, you know, for, for the great believers, I needed to read several books about the AIDS epidemic before I got in there for, for, I have some questions for you. I needed to do some legal research because, um, a lot of the book involves, uh, this, you know, question of, uh, getting a hearing for a retrial, wrongful, uh, incarceration, things like that. I needed to know what could this even be the story of in terms of legal stuff? Um, so you do that, but then you just keep writing and researching the whole time. Sometimes you hit a wall and you go, I can't write the scene until I know this. And then you you find it out. Other times you can leave a blank and come back to it later. Um, and then, you know, you're just doing general research the whole time too. And you find something that you want to include that you didn't know before. Um, there is, for instance, in in this novel, um, there's a detail about uh, Omar, the, the guy who has been in prison. Um, he's being brought um, quite far from the state, New Hampshire State Prison for men um, to this hearing every day. And um, he's only getting one meal a day because they wake him up very early. He has breakfast the bailiff is denying him lunch for no apparent reason. And by the time he returns to the prison, it's dinner is over. That was something I learned from this public defender that I was working with. Um, she, you know, I just, I said, like, tell, you know, tell me some details about um, working with, with um, incarcerated people. And she, you know, she said, this is a thing that happens a lot. And I, you know, had not, it wasn't something I, that I set out to find. Um, I, you know, wanted to know, you know, okay, what, what, you know, what's it like? But um, that was like, oh God, that, you know, I need to use that. That is a great mm-hmm. indicator of the, not only, you know, not only reality, but also um, the way the system is just completely rigged. You have someone standing there as a defendant who's about to pass out and how could, you know, and people are looking at them like, but does he look innocent or guilty? And it's like, well, he's about to faint, <laughs> like, you know? Um, so yeah, I did felt important to include. So I, yeah, that, but that research, um, you, yeah, you, I think if you try to do it all first, you don't even know what you're looking for and you're never going to get to the bottom of everything. You're going to, you know, it's just going to branch and branch forever and you're never going to write your book. And you also don't want to wait too late and then go, Oh, the book that I just wrote is technically impossible. I need to go back and change everything. <laughs> And if you do it as you go along, then you continue to write. And that's what seems to stop writers. It's like, oh no, I have all this all this research to do. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's not good. <laughs> so what about Omar? Where did he come from? You know, he, uh, he's, so just, you know, for people who haven't read the book, he's this uh, young man. He's the athletic trainer at this boarding school. He's He's a black man. He's 25 years old. And he's the only other person who's provably in the building the night that Thalia dies. She's found dead in the swimming pool. She has drowned, but she also has significant physical injuries. And he was provably in the building. Um, And so they quickly build a case against him and he's sentenced. Um, And, you know, I... um, I did need to develop him as a character and it was tricky because he he speaks for himself really only one big time in the book. Um, he is, um, you know, he is not the center of the book, which which is not partly because I'm not the writer to do that. I'm not the I'm not the right person to write 
uh, to center a narrative on someone who is currently incarcerated, someone who's dealing with that. I, it's just not, I'm not going to do the best job at that. Um, but he's, I needed to develop him. I needed to develop him in um, memories um, that Bodhi, my narrator has, I needed to develop him um, his voice later, he he gives this interview on a podcast and we really hear his side of the story. I also needed his mother as a character and her voice. Um, I mean, he didn't come from anywhere in particular. They're all, you know, they're all just from my brain. <laughs> That's, um, you know, and, and I'm learning um, and from things that I'm learning about, you know, uh, life in prison, about the New Hampshire State Prison for Men in specific. Um and, you know, he's, yeah, he's just, he's his own person. He's this, you know, um, young, intelligent guy who's also very young and, you know, um, likes to drive his car too fast. And then that's something they use against him. Like, oh, he must have been, he was speeding off campus because he must have done this thing. Um, just, just a, you know, a young guy uh, who, who this then happens to and who, who speaks about it later with, um, with a great deal of thought and, and, you know, hard-earned wisdom. So a minute ago, you talked about hitting a wall and in, and where, whatever you're in, and maybe you need to do a little more research on a specific thing. We were talking about research. Mm -hmm. So is it, is that like, do you ever hit a wall? I mean, other than you need more research. I mean, is there, do there, is there a time where you just go, I just don't know. Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. And what do you yeah. do? What do you do? Well, there's, you know, every, every novel contains within it this sort of fundamental impossibility. Um, you know, it, it, for this book, it was that question of like, you know, how do I tell the story of this woman who's going through this, you know, reliving this stuff and there's this man in prison and and so much of the point of the story is that his voice has been taken away from him, but is the novel accidentally replicating that by not centering his narrative? Mm. And how do I get around that? And oh my God, what am I doing? And and um, and so you 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 need to stop and think about it. You need to you know the the solutions to those questions are um, probably the breakthroughs for the novel. Mm. Um, and um, what I'll say is that the the way that you know not you know certainly did not change this to be a novel that was about, you know, fundamentally about this one guy, but I was able um, to, to mess a little bit with, um, not with the timeline, but, but basically um, Bodhi is, is, you know, telling what happened in 2018 and is from the point in time in which she's telling this, which is presumably about 2022 is now aware of the medical emergency that Omar was going through in prison. And so she's able to say, you know, I was sitting in this coffee shop, here's what happened. But also, by the way, at the same time, Omar was making this fever from this horrible infection and no one was there. So it was a way of um, uh, acknowledging, um, not, only, not only, you know, bringing his narrative in, but also acknowledging the way his narrative is fundamentally decentered um, by by this world. Um, so there's, you know, the, when when you hit a wall, I mean, there's no such thing as writer's block. It's a ridiculous idea, right? Um, when you hit a wall, certainly it could be for personal, you know, reasons of personal doubt. Oh my God, I'm not a writer. That could happen. But it's usually 
oh God, this book is broken. And all that is, is a matter of, okay, so I need to step back. I need to do some left brain thinking. I need to do some outlining. Maybe I need another set of eyes on it. I need to think about the big impossibility at the heart of this novel and, and my way around, not, not around it, but through it. My, my, you know, how am I going to, instead of, you know, that, that, that central impossibility is not something you can solve, but you can write about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's almost always the solution, right? And in this case, it was like, yeah, the fact that this guy's narrative is decentered is not something to ignore. It's not something to solve necessarily because I, I can't write this completely different book, um, but it's something to write about and to make thematically central and to acknowledge. And that, you know, so those walls are, you know, when you hit a wall, it's like, it's not a sign that your book is bad. It's a sign that this is the thing that you need to work out. Sometimes it might be right. And how would you know? I mean, that, 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 you know, there are projects that sometimes do, you know, like you look back and go, oh, that first novel I wrote, I'm so glad it didn't, it was never published. It's not the novel. It's not the novel itself. It's just how far you got with it. Hmm. there's no such thing unless it's like wildly offensive there's no such thing as a bad idea for a novel right if I tried to tell you the plot of Frankenstein and like okay this guy like digs up dead bodies and he sews them together and then they get chased across an iceberg is that a good idea for a novel yes or no (laughs) well no yeah (laughs) right try to describe the plot of Hamlet it ends up sounding like slapstick comedy like and then he stabs through the curtain but it's actually his girlfriend's dead like (laughs) sounds ridiculous Right. So it's, it's, it's nothing about, oh God, this is a rotten novel. I got to throw it away like a bad banana, right? It, it's like, you just didn't get there with it. You know, you, you stopped on draft three. Yeah. It's a good thing you didn't publish draft three. Could you have gone through and, and gotten to draft 25 and published that? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so- now when do you stop? When do you know? I mean, how do you know? Do you have other readers? That's- yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, consensus is it's great. Leave it alone. Um, No, no one ever says leave it alone. (laughs) That would be amazing. Um, No, it's, you know, you get, you know, you get to like a kind of a picking at scabs phase where you're like, I just changed couch to sofa back to couch. but Maybe it's a sofa. Is it a Davenport? (laughs) Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Right. Um, And, uh, and you know, when things, you know, you know, when you've solved some of the big problems and then, yeah, from, you know, at this point for me, it's, I have a writing group. There's seven of us. People are really, you know, these are all published authors, really tough on each other. Um, They're going to give me serious notes. I'm going to, you know, do everything with those. My husband's going to read it. A couple other friends are going to read it. And then it goes to my agent Mm -hmm. and she's either going to go, okay, this, let's send it on or she's going to go, Hmm, what about this part? Can you fix this up? Um, and, and would also say, I don't think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> fortunately hasn't happened yet. Um, and then, you know, there, the, the zillion rounds of editing when you actually get to your editor and then to the copy editor. And, um, so, you know, and then by that point it's, you're on it's deadlines, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like, when do you feel done? It's like, no, they need the copy edits back because the page proofs are due by this date. So you're, you know, you're working on tighter and tighter deadlines with smaller and smaller stuff. And then at what point do you see the cover? At what point did you see the cover? Hmm. Yeah, gosh, it was probably last summer, maybe. Can't remember. It's it's a long time in advance. Um, 
So, you know, this would vary certainly by the size of the publishing house. I'm, you know, my, I'm with Viking, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. And um, so they have a, they have the big Penguin art department and um, versus, you know, a, a smaller press where they need to outsource um, to one artist and um, uh, the, you know, there, there might be kind of fewer options. Um, we, with other books, we've definitely gone completely back to the drawing board several times. Um, with this one, with this cover, um, it was something pretty similar to this at first, but then there, there is a lot of back and forth um, on color and just, you know, spacing. And, uh, you know, we wanted it to look like water theoretically, but um, not very, not like a literal picture of a swimming pool. And there were just, you know, there were, there was a point where I was in New York for something else and there, you know, seven of us sitting around this table, like people from Penguin and just looking at like four different printouts of slightly different colors and arrangements and you, your vision starts to swim. And, um, but that, yeah, that, that all got, that all got settled, you know, last summer. Uh, it's a fun process. It's it's a it's really cool, and and then of course you know translations all have different covers, mm. and um, it's really fun to and, unless they license uh, a cover that's very similar and just do that their language, but usually they have very different covers. Um, so it's it's really fun to see those and to see the um, the different visual interpretations of the thing that you've written. Mm. And I have the arc so. You had talked about a map of the boarding school earlier. Did they? Did you put it's a no, map? No. There? It's not in there, but it's um, it is something that the marketing department did. That's really so. so sorry. I, it, so, the marketing department asked me if I had if I could hand draw a map, and I was like, "Yeah, but it's going to be really bad." And they were like, "Oh no, no, don't worry. We're going to have an artist do it." So I sent them my terrible pen drawn map of the campus. And then they had this wonderful artist do a watercolor or gouache, I'm not quite sure, um, uh, version of it that um, I know that copies of it are being sent out in this very, in these early marketing, like when they send to kind of big influencers, there's, there's a map in there, um, but then it'll be online as well. Uh, but no, I mean, it's not Lord of the Rings. I didn't need to put a map inside the front cover. So. No, but that's, I love it when maps are, you know, included. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. So before we go, I wanted to um, thank you for the explanation about braided narratives for one thing. Um, oh, no, and you're not, I mean, that, that I, th I think it's that's, a- um, It's useful and it becomes confusing, I think. I think it is, right. Um, you know, braided, I think we tend to use it mostly to talk about essays mm -hmm. and um, where it's like, you know, here's a strand about how to pluck a, goose and here's a strand about my father's death and here's a strand about something that happened when I was five and you go back and forth between those three and there's sort of this this echo chamber effect that is really really cool um and you I think you could definitely apply it to fiction too um if you're really going between say three time periods or like um there's this wonderful novel called The Maze at Windermere and I always forget the author. So um, I'm going to Google it right now. Gregory Blake Smith. He's hmm. got like seven or something different narrators in different time periods. One of them is Henry James, but one of them rides a motorcycle. Um, and he just goes back and forth between these. And, um, you know, they, they don't overlap. 
Um, they just they just weave in and out and, and you end up with this kind of cumulative effect. And I would say that that's a braided narrative in a very interesting way, too. Um, but not what I'm doing here, because this really right. is, <laughs> is memory, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Are you reading when you're working on a novel? Oh, God, of course. Yeah. How sad would that be to be like, I can't read for the next five years while I work like. <laughs> And then I have like a two, a two month gap where I'm allowed to read, but then I start my next novel. I can't, no, that'd be terrible. <laughs> and lastly, are you, where are you appearing in Southern California in the next few months? Are you going to be at the LA Times Festival of Books? I am. I'm yeah. also, um, gosh, I, uh, I'm reading um, in, whoa, let's see. I can tell you in one second here. I can look at my schedule. Um, uh, I know that I'm in San Diego, um, and is it on your website? It, it, yes, it is definitely okay. on the website. Um, yeah, I'm in San Francisco. I know that's not Southern California. Um, but, I'm, but Southern California, I'm, I'm in San Diego and then I'm, uh, at the LA Times Book Festival in oh. April as well. And then back East, all that would be on your site? It all, yeah, all my, all my public tour dates will definitely be on my site. Absolutely. Try I appreciate you taking the time. Um, yes, to talk. And it's been fun looking at your office and um, if this <laughs> video, you will see what I'm seeing, but what is that to your, over your left shoulder, the print? Oh, this what is, is um, okay. There's this, so I'm Hungarian. There's this very bizarre herbal liqueur called unicum mm -hmm. that um, is like, it, I actually kind of like it. Um, it's very wintry, but it's definitely the kind of thing where you'd like um, kind of dare someone to try it. <laughs> and this is a, this is a poster for unicum. Wow, I love it. I, love it. Um, I do have this here. I'm at, um, it's in Coronado. I'm at Warwick's. Okay, sure. That's a great bookstore. It is. I've read there before. I'm just not sure if it's Warwick or Warwick. Warwick. Uh, and it's at the, it's through them. It's at the Coronado Public Library. And I'm in conversation with Lacey Crawford, who has a brilliant memoir about um, her very problematic time at boarding school um, called Notes on a Silencing. So we'll have a really interesting conversation. And that is on um, a date that you'd think would be written down here somewhere. It's on March 3rd, I believe. Um, yes, it's on March 3rd. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, before we jump off, any last words or advice or something we didn't talk about that writers should remember? <laughs> Um, gosh, that's a good question. I, um, no, but I, I think I will, I'll repeat what I said before that the, you know, that, that central impossibility of the book that you're writing, consider writing about it instead of trying to solve it. Um, it, it, whatever that means to you, um, you know, maybe writing about it thematically, maybe writing about it literally. Um, but, but what is the, what is the problem at the heart of the book that, you know, between you and the book, what is the fight you are having with the book? And can that actually be part of the book? Can that be the thing you write about? Cause it's probably very interesting. Mm -hmm. So, um, maybe I'll leave you with that. Thank you. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank, you. thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great questions. I appreciate it. Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music design, 
and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthling.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com and Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair.